had to use the Urim and Thummim to figure out who gets to go first tonight. It's all right. If I get too uh, out of my depth doctrinally, then I'll just ask Brother Gideon to clear it up later. Some of my math books in college used to do a nasty trick where they would say something normal and then they would say the student will readily see and then they would do something preposterous and then they would say the exercise or the proof is left as an exercise for the student. So I feel like that's a uh, motto for actually my whole life sometimes. Proof is left as an exercise. Um, a few years ago, actually a number of years ago now, uh, Sister Charity Titus visited here, and she shared, of course, like her being here at all in her physical condition was, you know, no trivial feat. Um, so I remember a few of the comments that she made, and she was talking, she said specifically to the young people, which maybe I was one of those once upon a time. Um, <laughs> You can only be young once, but you can always be immature. Um, but she was saying that every generation as they grow up, they have to kind of reckon with the particular difficulties, the things that they find in the surrounding culture, the particular challenges that the Lord has ordained for them. And, you know, that really is true. Um, I remember as a young child, you know, my parents would like taped the Time Magazine pages together or like women in their bikinis or whatever. And um, <clears throat> so that was the level of challenge that we were dealing with. And I think one of the recent um, Sports Illustrated covers of a bikini model was actually a man. So, you know, I don't know that anyone saw that coming, but every generation does really... <laughs> In, I don't know, and I would say it's a temptation for the most part, but, you know, <laughs> every generation does indeed field a new, you know, set of, of challenges uh, and difficulties, uh, but the thing that Sister Charity said that really impacted me was she said, but my trust is in the effectiveness of the holy seed of Christ that is inside of each of you, um, and that has really stuck with me. <clears throat> Um, I was excited, Brother John mentioning faith last night. Faith is one of the the words that isn't simply defined as much in the Bible. There's a lot of statements about faith and about people who did things by faith. But I've been thinking recently that our faith is the the connectivity between the apparent reality that you and I see in the everyday circumstances that we encounter and the equally real reality of what the Lord is in fact doing and working to accomplish that is in the unseen realm. And if there's anything that will preserve us and if there's anything that will be preserved, um, it's the holy seed of Christ that the Lord is actually growing uh, in his people. Um, there's a few <laughs> stories of faith. We obviously will not read all of them. Um, but I'll just read the maybe a quick snippet, one of the most maybe profound statements of faith is in Genesis 22 with Abraham. You know, the Lord, it says in verse 1, um, God did tempt Abraham. 
And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I tell thee of. But you know, down in uh, verse 5, you know, Abraham makes the journey, he does all of the things. But he just makes one of the most profound statements of faith. He says, Abraham said unto his young man, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. You know, if you want to talk about someone who has a really serious grasp, you know, on the connectivity of what the Lord is actually doing, uh, it says that he accounted that God was even able to raise Isaac from the dead. Um, but I also like... <laughs> The story, for some reason, I've been thinking recently about the story of Rahab, which is a hilarious story in some ways. <laughs> Joshua <laughs> sends men to secretly spy out the land, even Jericho, and uh, they were being very faithful, leaving no stone unturned. Um, and uh, just doing their job. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's she makes a statement, you know, I've shown you this kindness. She says it's clear, that, you know, that the Lord has given you the land. Um, the terror of God has fallen upon all, all the inhabitants. Which is, you know, it's just funny. How did Rahab get involved in this? You know, she's on the wrong side, perhaps the wrong profession. Um, you know, there's no outward indication that would lead us to think, yeah, this is the person that the Lord is going to, to use mightily. Uh, and yet she was instrumental, and it says in Hebrews... 11, you know, she's in the roll call of faith. And it makes an interesting comment. It says that she perished not with those who didn't believe. Um, you know, that's the distinction that is being made. And it's always important, you know, you and I have our, our analysis of the circumstance, the, the plain reading of the facts you have to be careful with. But it's always important to, uh, you know, read the, the end of the story. And the distinction that God makes is she perished not with those who didn't believe because she had a walk of faith. She had a connectivity to what the Lord was actually doing and awareness of, of what he was doing. If you look in Revelations, don't always read Revelations. I feel like you need a good, good night's sleep, maybe a strong cup of coffee before you head into Revelations. Um, but I was reading in Revelations 7 and 8, but there's a lot of things going on. I'll leave those for the game to explain to you. Um, there's beasts, there's elders um, giving praise and saying, Holy is the Lamb. There's about a quarter of a chapter on locusts. Um, these locusts are very noteworthy because they have the head of a man, the hair of a woman, and also this tail of a scorpion, um, and their torment is for five months, the torment of scorpions. So, anyways, there's a lot. There's a lot happening um, sometimes in Revelations. I feel like I'm grasping for straws just to get something that makes sense. Um, but there's a, you know, there's an interesting part we've been hearing. I think Brother David recently was mentioning, you know, in eight verse three, there's an angel that comes and stands at the altar having a golden censer. There's given to him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar. And the smoke of the incense which came up with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. I think that's an interesting, interesting statement. Um, you know, perhaps you might, you might be tempted to think that your time of prayer is the time for you to relate to God all of the things that you require him to do for you. But um, 
Actually, our communion with God is a, you know, is an incense. Uh, but there's an interesting thing that happens after that. Um, and the frame of the whole, the rest of the chapter, I would interpret, um, it actually does explicitly say this in, in verse 13, but it's woe to those who inhabit the earth, basically. Um, you know, it's a strong case to be made for having a real connectivity to the life of God and having, you know, access to a, a level of life that is transcendent to my understanding. Um, and there's one thing that, in verse 11, there's something that really did make sense and it kind of caught my attention. We'll, we'll say verse 10, maybe. It says, the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp. And it fell upon the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood. And a third part of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. And I was thinking, maybe one of the great assaults against the integrity of the connection that you and I have to the life of God is actually bitterness. Um, you know, there, all of us have a vision that we could plot out of hopes and, and plans and things that we have, ideas of how we'd like our life to be, our, you know, our spiritual walk, our community, our church, our, our career, our family, all of the different things. And, you know, one of the things that I believe that the Lord has done in some sense or another is he has allowed us in some cases to prosper tremendously. And in other places, he has allowed us to have tremendous disappointments and tremendous difficulties. And, you know, one of the, one of the profound places where, where the Lord has stripped away some of the, perhaps, the, the plumage of apparent success uh, most profoundly is just when you look at your own heart and you say, man, I wish, you know, I thought I'd be further along. I didn't think I'd still be struggling with this. I didn't think that I would have difficulty with that individual or with this response or whatever. Um, you know, in some ways, you know, the, the most important and most disappointing thing is just that you, you had expected that the Lord would have brought you to a to a more advanced state <laughs> than he has. <laughs> and so disappointment and bitterness, I think, is one of the great stumbling blocks. Um, if you look at 2 Kings 19, I think it's one of the most tremendous intercessions by an individual under the most incredible, unimaginable duress that you can imagine. And I think that there's something of an answer to the disappointment and, and the difficulty to some extent. And this is in 2 Kings 19. And the context is that Israel is besieged by Assyria. Um, I guess we could have backed up and uh, discussed, you know, when Rabshakeh comes in 2 Kings 18. And, uh, you know, he's surrounded the city. And, you know, he says, Hearken not to Hezekiah, for thus saith the king of Assyria, make an agreement with me, by present, come out to me, and eat ye every man of his own vine, every man of his own fig tree, till I come and take you away. You know, and then he says, um, Hath any of the gods of the nations delivered at all his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? You know, where are all the other gods? And in Second Kings 19, it says, It came to pass, when king Hezekiah heard it, he rent his clothes, 
covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, which was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, son of Amoz. And they said unto him, Thus saith Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble, and of rebuke, and blasphemy. For the children are come to birth, and there is not strength to bring forth. And it may be the Lord thy God will hear all the words of Rabshakeh, whom the king of Assyria, his master, hath sent to reproach the living God, and will reprove the word which the Lord thy God hath heard. Wherefore, lift up thy prayer for the remnant that are left. Um, and I thought, what a terrific, you know, understanding that he had. You know, to, to the extent that we are doing anything, <coughs> you know, as a, as a church, as a group, as a fellowship, you know, to the extent that it is significant in any way, it is because it is significant because it is something that the Lord is doing. Um, you know, that we are connected to a, a new life that none of us had any idea for. None of us chose to, to be chosen in any sense. Um, and increasingly, you know, my prayer has been, Lord, do you hear the, you know, the word spoken to reproach the living God you know this <laughs> it seems like the accuser of the brethren has all the receipts right like there's always evidence <laughs> to be produced um, that that somehow this is not working and by this I just mean could the Lord actually genuinely bring us into conformability with his life to the point that we would be a demonstration of the spirit of God and that we could actually meaningfully commune with the living God eternally um, you know, not a trivial calling. Um, but, you know, the, the fight really is against the word of the Lord. Um, and my prayer is, you know, Lord, we don't have the strength to do any of these things. Um, perhaps it might be. And not even besides that, I wouldn't exactly say that, you know, the Lord picked us because we were particularly worthy one way or the other. Um, all I can say is perhaps the Lord will hear the word of reproach against him and reprove the words against us. Um, you know, it says in Micah 7, verse 16, I think, you know, he will subdue our iniquities. I think that's a, a pretty big encouragement. Um, you know, because we know that, you know, it's just not within us to bring ourselves to the point, you know, that we're aware of. It seems that the Lord has given us enough awareness to sort of have a grasp of, of the things that we ought to know and ought to do and the ways we ought to live. And yet he has not afforded us uh, any capacity by ourselves to produce the life that we know that we ought to be having. And so, you know, the only hope is that the Lord actually uh, subdues our iniquities for us. And, you know, the only thing that I can do is, is keep hold of the, the connectivity to what he is actually doing. And I did want to read a little story, actually. <clears throat> Perhaps you will understand how it relates to the, the meaning of the word. Um, but it's about, you know, uh, I guess to, to frame it, I guess I, I like the verse in, I think it's in Second Corinthians, um, as a framing of what, what the Lord is doing. You know, God was in Christ reconciling the world not imputing their transgressions. Uh, and, and there's a story about, about a, a rescue and an escape that I thought was pretty interesting. 
perhaps you can stand a good story. Um, so there was a man named Heinz Leichner. He was an Austrian fellow. This is in 1963. And he had a work permit that allowed him to work in East Berlin. And he met a woman. Um, and they fell in love and they were planning to get married. And the Berlin Wall came up and uh, was constructed. And she was not able to emigrate out of East Berlin. So he starts planning different ways that he might be able to extract her <laughs> from where she's living. And she insists, obviously, that she wants to bring her mother along, too. So one of the times that he's going by Checkpoint Charlie, which is the portal between East and West Berlin, one of the border crossings, he notices, he's looking, and he notices that the crossbar is set pretty high that lifts up and drops down to open the way. So one of the times that he's driving through on his motor scooter while the guard is examining his passport, he discreetly removes a measuring tape from his pocket and he checks and he sees that it's exactly 37 and a half inches from the ground. So Meixner begins to look through the rental car agencies. You'll see where this story is going. <clears throat> and he finds a sports car called an Austin Healy Sprite. Without the windshield, the sports car measures 35 and one half inches in height. So, he makes his fiance lay down behind the seats. There's not really a back seat, it's a very small sports car. And he puts his future mother-in-law, almost an ex-future mother-in-law perhaps, in the trunk. <laughs> and he's worried that when he goes past that the East German border guards might start shooting, so he puts a layer of bricks behind his mother-in-law. Okay. Don't worry, Debbie. <laughs> i try a lot of other things first. Um, <clears throat> anyways, so he pulls up midnight on a Sunday when he doesn't think anyone will be too suspicious. And he gives his passport to the border guard. And when he turns to go wave him to the customs shack, he just guns the engine, goes right underneath the crossbar. Um, no, the guys were so stunned, they didn't even think about what had happened. Um, actually, the funny part is that the next month, another person did the exact same thing and he rented the exact same car to do it. <laughs> and the funny thing is that he actually was stopped by the East German police, and he thought, the jig is up. Uh, they caught me. You know, they've suspected. And it actually was just that his exhaust pipe was a little bit loose. Um, anyway, yeah. I thought that was pretty tremendous. Um, just as an interlude. I'll be done soon. There probably weren't a lot of promotions in the East German uh, Border Guard Division that month, but uh, it's a good thing the whole thing sort of wound down pretty soon. Uh, in Exodus uh, chapter 35, not Genesis where I was, but Exodus, there's a story of the creation of the tabernacle. and. Somehow, reading through it, I have been impacted more than usual. I guess I've certainly read about the tabernacle before, 
there's a lot of different symbols. You know, everything has a meaning. And a lot of people have had the anointing to, to really investigate some of those things. Um, I was kind of distracted by the golden ouches. Um, I was wondering, without Google, I would have never known. Um, I would have just assumed that there was something sharp and pokey. <laughs> what are we going to call these? Well, stabbed myself enough, I believe we'll call it the golden ouches. Um, I think they're just more like a clasp, anyway, for those who are wondering. Um, anyway, but the thing that really struck me, I guess in general, uh, there's a part where it says, maybe uh, in start in verse, let's say, verse 21 maybe. It says, well, verse 20, all the congregation of the children of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him up, and everyone whom his spirit made willing. Um, and then it says down below, um, in verse 24, you know, everyone that did offer an offering of silver and brass brought the Lord's offering, and every man with whom was found shittim wood for any work of service brought it. And the women who were wise-hearted did spin with their hands, brought that which they had spun, both the blue, purple, scarlet, and fine linen. Uh, and all the women whose hearts stirred them up in wisdom uh, spun goat's hair. And the rulers brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastplate, the spice and the oil for the light, the anointing oil and the sweet incense. Um, you know, there's willing offerings, there's, that keeps on mentioning, you know, um, in verse 35 says, them hath he filled with the wisdom of heart to work all manner of work, of the engraver, of the cunning workman, of the embroiderer, blue, purple, scarlet, fine linen. Um, anyway, it just keeps on emphasizing, you know, people whose hearts are stirred up by the spirit. Um, and obviously the tabernacle, amazing as it was, it, you know, the point of it was that it pointed to and was symbolic of the people of God uh, coming together to produce a place where the Lord would dwell. And the way that that happens is that the Spirit of the Lord stirs different individuals, different members in particular up, and gives them the appropriate wisdom for the appropriate circumstance um, to, uh, to have something to give to the body, that the body be built up um, to a place where the Lord can actually inhabit it. And, you know, it's a tremendous, a tremendous illustration of how God's people coming together to produce something. Um, it's not that you and I have, you know, particularly the, the appropriate talents. It's that we are, um, we are given the spirit of wisdom. We are given, um, our hearts are made willing, and the Lord actually performs, in fact, an operation upon us to produce a sort of life where the Lord could indwell us and actually have us as a place where he can dwell. Um, pretty tremendous, you know, to think of, you know, limited, finite beings as being companions for the living God who created the universe. Um, you know, that's something to really think about. Um, let that sink in. And I'll, I'll wind up with a, one of my favorite verses in uh, Isaiah chapter 6. Um, you know, the central, the central connectivity, I think, of what the Lord is 
is actually doing is producing um, a genuine substance in people. And, you know, it may be that the Lord will allow, in certain places, you know, some of the outward manifestations of apparent spiritual success to be sort of stripped away. Um, and there's a, maybe I'll start in verse 10. It says, make the heart of this people fat, make their ears heavy, shut their eyes, <clears throat> lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. And then said I, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant and the houses without man and the land be utterly desolate. And the Lord have removed men far away and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. And then he says, but yet in it shall be a tenth and it shall return and shall be eaten as a teal tree and as an oak whose substance is in them. When they cast their leaves, so the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. And, you know, I think it should be, should be encouraging that the intention of the Lord is not foiled, um, that we really do serve a sovereign God and the circumstances before us are in, in some sense his providential provision for us. Um, you know, and at, at times it can certainly appear, um, I think C.S. Lewis said, uh, even as a Christian, sometimes this whole program uh, looks immensely improbable. Um, you know, like you just, you can't quite square the circumstance that you're in with the understanding of what you had believed to be your calling. Um, you know, and yet it says the substance is in you. Um, even when you cast your leaves, even when you do not see, you know, an obvious and apparent sign of life, um, the Holy Seed of Christ is indwelling in us, and, um, and we trust and, and stay connected to it. Amen.